thrilled with VBS because of what's necessary for it to take place, the hand of God to be at work, His blessing upon us, moving on the hearts of so many people to serve in so many ways. Um, it was just overwhelming. Not only that, but to move on those folks who brought their children and the adults who came, um, it really is just uh, a great grace upon us through the course of the week. So it's just a blessing. Um, here this morning we'll be in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. If I didn't already say that, I should have. Um, looking forward to the trip with the, in the Keys here in a couple of weeks. That's going to be a blessing. If you guys have turned there to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, let's, let's start with prayer. Again, our God and our Father, our Savior, our Lord, the indwelling of your Spirit in our lives. It's in, as we rightly heard, the triune God we have come. Father, to worship and praise you, to be instructed by you, to be equipped to live for you. And I just pray, Father, that you would illuminate what you want illuminated today. Illustrate and make known. Build up and take out. Do all things for your glory. Let it be a blessing for us. I pray, Father, that you would speak for me convey what you would have. Throw out anything that would be of Robin, make it all of the Lord. I give you the praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Just for some context, make sure we, where we are, we're looking at 1 Timothy, this pastoral epistle that he, Paul writes to Timothy, and he writes another one to Titus. Uh, we have been looking at it. We're in chapter 2, picking up in verse 1, but if you remember back in the previous chapter, Paul makes the point that he has urged Timothy to put elders in place, put men of God there to speak the truth of God's Word, to teach that truth, to see that it's known. It makes the point about those teachers uh, needing to know the Word of God, uh, to be well-equipped in it. He also goes on to make the point that it's uh, despite what he was, what Paul was when he was Saul, God put him in the ministry, gave him this ministry to teach the truth, to convey these words. And in he reminds them that the reason, one of the reasons necessary is the end of chapter 1 when it, men will fall into to false teachers that will shipwreck their soul. And he lists a couple of guys who are already in that position. And so that's kind of where we stopped. You know, that's where we are now. So we understand that Paul has laid for us this need for teachers. And he makes out first and foremost the need to know the Word of God. And then he gives us some details now, a couple important points about who it is we're teaching and why we're teaching. And so let's read the first few verses. He says, Therefore I exhort, I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayer, intercession, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. I wrote some notes to myself, and I have to start out by saying that I've long struggled trying to explain this text in my understanding of Scripture. How, how God can say in verse 4, and we're really just going to go there first and, and, and flower out from both sides where he says there, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, some of your translations may say that God would that all men be saved, or some other way it's being said, depending on what translation you're looking at. But it's all kind of the same thing. But the, 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 the question that is there, 
is if God wills all men to be saved, why aren't all men saved? If God wills that all men come to the knowledge of the truth, why don't all men come to the knowledge of the truth? We were talking earlier, and, and based on Josh's Sunday school class, we had a discussion about heaven and hell and who's there and who's not. Uh, the, the, the point I would make in reference to all men being saved is, if all men are saved, then why is there even a question about hell? Why is there a need for a lake of fire if all men be saved? God who is eternal and all-knowing and all-present, everything else that we read about in the, in the London Baptist Confession, if that be the case, then why did God create something that He doesn't intend to use? God, I don't believe ever has made something he didn't intend to use. See, I could do that. You guys ever bought anything you never used? You ever built anything you never used? I, I have. Why do we buy I go through my closets now and go, why do we have this? Well, we thought we needed it when we bought it. Apparently, we just had a need to spend money, <laughs> and that satisfied it. But he says here, who will desire to have all men be saved. Now, if one he would desire, if he would have all men to be saved, the question is, why aren't all men saved? Why does not God, in his infinite power and grace and, and, and all that he is, simply cause men to be saved? Why does he not do that? Why doesn't he simply act and turn, turn everyone to salvation? Or more importantly, why, is, why was there even a need for the fall? Why did he even put the tree in the garden if all men were going to be saved? Why even create the problem of saving all men? If he doesn't plant the tree in the garden and tell Adam and Eve to stay from it, this, this question doesn't even come about. And yet, the infinite glory of our God, he does this. I maintain that everything's for his glory, which is found in worship, praise, adoration. Even the fall of man was for his glory because the, the greatest glory Jesus gets is redeeming lost men, taking you from death and bringing you to life. And so the part of the reason for the fall was that, so that he would redeem men. And it still doesn't kind of go to question there. So then the other question becomes, well, then, if, how can God, if he, if he wills men to be saved, how does he create election? Why does he make a promise to Abraham that in his seed every nation would be blessed? If all men are going to be saved, why does he specifically have a people from the very beginning? I believe from Genesis 1 all the way straight through to Revelation 22, he had a people. And those people were always going to be redeemed. And just because they're always going to be redeemed in no way means they're not, that they do not have to repent. As we heard in Sunday school this morning, I thought it was great. There's nobody in hell going, I sure want to be in heaven, but because God didn't elect me, I'm not there. That's just not the case. They're there because they want to be, because they reject God, they hate God, they do away with God. And by, turn, by, by contrast, there's nobody sitting in heaven going, I really don't like it here. I kind of like hanging out with the sinners. I kind of like all that, so why am I here? Oh, that's right, God chose me. I guess I just got to be here. That's not going on either. That's not, that's not happening. So then if God, who is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, and in every way His will is done, we go back to Daniel chapter 4, and he makes the point, Daniel makes the point, that nobody can stay the hand of God. Nobody can. You can't get away from God if God wants to do something in your life. Read Jonah. 
You can't stop what God wants to do. You can't stay His hand. You can't stay His power. You can't stay His grace. So if all men, if He wills that all men be saved and all men aren't saved, you can't jump to the semi-seemingly logical conclusion that men just don't do it. You have to interpret this passage properly. And the proper understanding here for this word will, or God would have all men be saved, really is the first and foremost meaning for it is God would say wish. And we have a hard time with that. How does God wish for a thing? See, when we wish for things, it really is because we want something that we ourselves can't cause to happen. I wish I'd win the lottery. I wish somebody'd behave. I wish this would happen. I wish that person in front of me would go. I'm the only one who's ever said that. Have you ever said it to me when I'm sitting there? Yes. But it really does mean that God desires that all men be saved. I think first and foremost what we're seeing here is the sovereign God at work. And don't let, don't lose sight of God's sovereignty by the lens of theology that you use. Because if you're not careful, you look at this and come away thinking God's not able or men are superior, men are greater. It's really men's will who outshines God's will. There's a theology out there today that says God can't know a thing until you do it. Open theism. God can't know a thing until you do it. I don't know about that God who would believe, who teaches such a thing, but our God knows all things. Because he says that he declares the end from the beginning. When you declare the end before you start, you know the whole matter. You know all of it. So in this passage, when he says that he desires all men to be saved, or he will all men to be saved, or he would that all men be saved, what we're seeing first and foremost is the love of God. Part of his nature being expressed that God desires that all men be saved. Well, I mean, think about it for a minute. What kind of God would say that he doesn't desire for you to be saved? God's actually going, no, I don't want you saved. Think about that. The implication of our God, our triune God, sitting there in glory going, nope, don't want you saved. And yet that doesn't take away from our God who is angry with the wicked every day. Who rightly punishes sin. Who put His Son to the cross so that He could rightly punish sin. And if you remain in disobedience to this living God, you'll be rightly punished. And yet this whole time, God is still saying, I desire that you be saved. I, 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 would, I would have you be saved. I know that He would have me be saved because of the rest of this passage. He gives two wonderful truths here in this passage that He's telling through the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to the world that God's got two things that He laid out for us. If you're going to have elders and teachers and men of God conveying these truths, you've got to understand something. Your God desires men be saved. He does. We have to grasp that desire. I thought about in Matthew chapter 23. Remember when Jesus entered into Jerusalem for His last appearance there before the cross. And He looks at Jerusalem and He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I have longed to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks, but you would not. 
same exact word is being used there when he says that God would gather you is the same word that's being used here in Timothy. And so we have a good picture of what it means when God says, I I long to gather you, I would gather you, but you would not. Because you utterly and completely reject me, and it doesn't change what I'm doing. So we understand then when God says, I desire this, He can desire this, and yet fulfill all of God's sovereign will. That's the key here. He doesn't cease to be God and change his nature and change his person and change what he's decreed and change anything about God has ever said or done and throughout our history when he says, I desire that men be saved. What a gracious God that he desires us to be saved. Think about that for a minute. He desires you to be saved. How do I know? Because look what he says in the rest of this chapter now. Now we'll go both ways. We'll go down some and up some here to read this. He says that he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The first key component here is the second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity, he desires that through him you be saved and it's through him that you must come to. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Right now there's false teachers out there and most of them are on talk shows, I've noticed, or a good portion of them. And one of them is out there saying that there are you know, multiple ways to get to God. There's multiple ways. Relative truth, postmodernism, my truth, a truth. There is only truth and that truth is Jesus Christ. He's the truth. And God is saying here, I desired all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So you must come to the knowledge of the truth. The fact of the matter is you must be known and know who Jesus is. See, there was a time when there was a multitude of men going around casting out demons and doing all sorts of things. But on the day, Jesus said, Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So how does God say on the one hand, you you, workers of iniquity depart, and on the other hand, in the same sentence, say, I don't know you. See, I have to know you in order for me to make some kind of declaration about you. I couldn't say, if I don't know you, you give me a name. Hey, you know so-and-so? No, I don't know them. I don't know nothing about them. I couldn't say anything about them. They say, well, what about, you know David Tyner? Yeah, I know Brother David Tyner. I can tell you some things about Brother David. I know him. And God, in one sentence, says... Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And he also says, I never knew you. I had no relation with you. I don't know who you are because you and I aren't together. You don't know the truth. And because you don't know the truth, you are an arbitrator of wickedness. You are a worker of iniquity. You have to know the truth. And there's only one truth, Jesus, who is the Christ. There's not any other truth to know. We can know parts of truth. We can know pieces of truth. We were talking the other day about the ark, uh, the ark exhibit, and we were having this discussion about it. You know what? That's truth, right? The ark, we believe the ark, we believe those things about it, but that in itself is insufficient to save you. You can believe about the ark, but it won't save you. The only truth that can deliver you is Jesus, who is the Christ. That's the knowledge of the truth that God has put there for us to know. 
The triune God agreed in eternity that the second person of the Trinity would come down to earth and take on the shape of a man and bear sin. And the third person of the Trinity then begins to exalt him from the moment he, ex he is poured out on the earth after his ascension, he begins to exalt him. That's one of the reasons I think when you read the New Testament, you read it and you go, you see, oh, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But you don't see, quote, a lot about and the Holy Spirit, right? It's not it's just like constantly being printed in the same way the other two are. Well, you know why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one doing the talking. And the Holy Spirit is always, when he's properly doing his job, he is always exalting the Son. You want to know when a sermon is truly of God? Does it exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? Because then that's the Holy Spirit actually doing the work. When it exalts me or the church building or some other thing, then you can have start to question about it because then it may not be of God because the Holy Spirit is always never speaking of Himself. That's why we don't see Him constantly listing Himself in the New Testament because He's constantly talking about the other two parts of the Trinity. And that's how we know that it's there. This is the truth you and I have to know. He says he desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he, he now he points to us in verse 5. What is this truth? For there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And this is where most people start to crash and burn. And this is where all the false religions who are monotheistic begin to talk about, well, there's only one God. How did God have a son? Did God have a wife? Did God do this? How does He have that? How did He separate Himself from His Holy Spirit? Then we fall into forms of modalism where it's each portion a part of it. But the fact is, He says, there is one God and one mediator. One God, the triune God, and the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we see that our God who desires all men be saved has said, I want you to know the truth, and this is the truth. I'm God, and you're not. And this triune God has sent the second person to mediate between you and me. We already heard this morning in Sunday school, you can't approach God. Moses had to hide in the rocks. And I thought, what a great point, teacher, was that not that rocks didn't cover Moses, God's hand covered Moses. It was God's hand that protected Moses from God's presence, not the rocks. I thought, man, that's good. And so now the second, the second person of the Trinity is now mediating between you and and God, because you know what? You and I can't approach this triune God. I don't care how hard you try. You and I cannot come into His presence. We're not worthy. We're not able. We're not clean. We're not good. You got nothing. I don't care where you went to church. I don't care what your family line is. I don't care what your heritage is. I don't care what, any, what nation you were born in. And none, of it, it, none of it will get you into the presence of God. You have to have a mediator. And this mediator is Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe Him, you're as condemned now as you ever were. You're as hopeless as you ever were. The second person of the Trinity is interceding on your behalf. Isn't that good? Amen. To me it is. He says, he goes further and he says, this man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. You know, as I thought about this, and there's a number of ways to 
preached that, and I think all of them would be fairly accurate. We can talk about his, his return. It will be testified in due time when he returns on that white horse and his very presence destroys the wicked one, 2 Thessalonians. And he, by his word, he destroys all those who are against him. And by his word, he receives his people. So he's testified of in that way. He sits on the great white throne of judgment, Revelation 20, and deals with those who would not believe, casting them into the lake of fire that's been reserved for the devil and his angels, throwing hell and death in there with it. He's exalted in that way. He's exalted when he was lifted up on the cross, paying the price for you and I. We think so much of ourselves we don't think we really owe. You ever disputed a bill? Am I the only ones ever disputed a bill? Why are you charging me that? You didn't even, you didn't even come to my house. What do you what what? I just go ahead and tell you, there's no disputing the charges against you and I. You're not going to be able to argue it away in the eternal throne room of grace going, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought about it. You know, there's, there's the, the, one of those non-sequitur discussions, right? One of them is, is that, well, how, you know, when, when's Jesus coming back? Well, when the whole world hears about him. Well, who hears about him in Zimbabwe? How can God judge somebody who's down in Zimbabwe somewhere and didn't hear about Jesus? I'm going, no, you don't know the Scripture nor the power of God. Romans 10 says that the proclamation went out to the whole world so that men are without excuse. You in this nation or any other cannot say, oh, I didn't know about Jesus. Proclamation went out. God's blameless and righteous in what he does. He's also testified in due time in you and I. See, if you're sitting here today as a believer, what happened to you is God came to you some point, somewhere in your life, and he confronted you about who you were. He confronted you about what you were. He dealt with you plainly and going, charging you with the sin that you were, that you had lived out. And in that moment, His desire to save you was made known. And He convicted you of sin. And you, by the grace of God, repented. You, by the grace of God, called on His mercy. You said, forgive me. You called to Him. I don't know how you did it, but you did. And when the process of that going on, God, according to 2 Timothy, granted you repentance. And I want you to make it, I want to be clear on this one. Repentance is not something, oh, I'm going to pick up some repentance. Oh, thank you, I got it. That's not how it works. God said, I'm going to give you repentance. I'm going to grant it to you because I am the arbitrator of repentance is what God said. I am the arbitrator of truth. I am the one of justice. I am the one who punishes sin. I am the one who resurrects the dead. I am the arbitrator. I'll grant you repentance. How do I know that? Because Esau sought it with many tears and he never obtained it. And yet, countless others have. It's God who grants repentance and believing faith. He's the one who does it. And that's why we, all we have to do is fall down and worship Him, give Him glory and praise Him, thank Him, repeatedly thank Him for what He's done.
granting you repentance, which allows you and I to come into the presence of God through the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and I. That's good news. And y'all are looking at me so sad. He is the ransom for all. It's funny, in this particular passage, the word all comes up a lot, and you hear a lot of discussion about what all means. It's not really the word all you need to deal with, it's the other words. When it says here, who gave himself a ransom for all, you know what, I'm going to say it this way. I, do not, I am not a universalist, I don't believe in that. I believe God has an ordained people that he elected from eternity past, and he's saving those people, that's what I hold to. And yet I also believe just what this word says, that he is the ransom for all, and it's very just this simple. There is no other ransom by which men are saved. There is no other sacrifice that can be acceptable. There is no other lamb that's been given from the foundation of the world to deliver men than Jesus. There is no other God who's able to help you. There is no other king who will grant repentance. There is nobody but Jesus. He is the ransom for all. If a man be saved, he be saved by Jesus Christ. If a man be delivered, he be delivered by Jesus Christ. If a man be granted repentance, he be granted repentance by Jesus Christ. If a man live, he live by Jesus Christ. There is no other ransom that can be offered. So when it says he gave himself a ransom for all, guess what? I'm one of the alls. And if you believe, you're one of the alls too. And that's good news. Because I used to be one of them. I used to be one of the others. I used to be one of those that wasn't. And God's anger and wrath was on upon me just as rich and plain as His grace and His mercy is now. I was rightly due death and it was abiding, but God was gracious because He desired that all men be saved. And it takes nothing away from God's sovereign will or His acts or who He is. He desired it, and I am so grateful. But now let's move up to verse 1, because now we see first and foremost that God has given, He has given teachers who teach this truth, the knowledge of the truth. Thank God for those men and women in your life who taught you the truth. Whether it was on your mama's knee as a baby, all the way up to pastors and teachers and elders in your church, men of God, the men you listen to throughout the week, they taught you and teach the truth. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man could know the Father but by Him. He also gave, Paul gave Timothy something else I want you to do. Look at verse 1. I exhort therefore, first of all, supplication, prayer, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. This is good and acceptable in sight of God our Savior. Let me ask you this one. You having any trouble praying for our current president? Alright, watch out now. We'll be talking about your line here in a minute. I hope not, I really don't, because that's not the, the passage here doesn't in any way give us any break on who it is. He doesn't say here, now, uh, I desire, how does he say it? Therefore I exert that all supplication, prayer, and giving thanks be made for all men and all kings who are Republicans. Man. 
got to pray for them too, don't we? You know, all I can say is this about that. I, can, well, I have a lot to say about it, but I want to say this first. He is instructing teachers that prayer be made for all men. And we can debate what all is here. But I know over in another passage of Scripture, he says, pray for those who hate you and spitefully use you. Hmm. Now, what should I pray for them? That God should swat them? Pray that his house be short? Life be small on the earth? I don't think that's what Jesus was implying there, was he? I think he was telling me that I needed to pray for my enemies. Those who would hate me and despitefully use me. I'm supposed to pray for all. I'm supposed to make prayer for all men. There's not a debate here about who all men are. He says, I'm supposed to pray. Matter of fact, what I'm really seeing in this passage, and this is the whole point of all of this, that if I am an imitator of Jesus Christ, if I'm a follower of the Lord, if I can say what Paul said, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, if I can say, be holy as I am holy, if I have to take those passages and live out those passages, then you know what needs to happen in my life? I need to desire that all men be saved. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we kind of get off track, don't we? You ever made a determination about somebody? Be careful. It's just happened recently and this week. As a church, we've had to deal with some things. And the, finding concluding, the conclusion of the matter is this. Repent. Repent. And be received in the family of God. Don't repent and stay outside of the family of God. Stay excluded from the things of God. Because it's my desire that all men be saved. That's why we opened the doors. That's why we did BBS last week, so we could preach the gospel again and put the seeds of the gospel in again. That's why we have tolerated upon toleration, because we know what God has tolerated in us, and so we desire all men be saved, and this is why we do it. But part of this, all men be saved, is repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And you can't do that and be here. But I was so convicted as I read this passage this week and as I studied it. Do I desire all men to be saved? Heck, I thought about it this way. I desire that all men come to Sunday school. Now, ain't none of y'all saying nothing right now. Okay. Yeah, I went to meddling, preacher. Now you're talking about getting up at 945. I desire all men to do it, but I can't make anybody do it. Now, God can we know that. So what do I do? We put Sunday school in place. We try to get the best teachers we can have studying the Word of God and breaking it down for you. We try to have a time and a place and all the comforts that go, go along with it. We try to make it known so that you will know the truth and know who the mediator is. I have to desire all men be saved because my Lord did. And that's sufficient. God really will, he really will carry out His will. His elect will be delivered. He will carry it out. He will do His sovereign work in your life and mine. But what this passage is telling me as a teacher of the gospel in this place 
But I have to desire all men be saved. And I have to teach Jesus Christ and His crucified as the only hope in your salvation. I can't make you be saved. I can't, because if I could, honestly, how many, we all got people, we would unscrew their heads and pour the gospel in, screw their head back on and shake them like a James Bond martini until they get saved. You know you would. Some of us would get the ride out and beat them until they got saved. God has given us two things here. The truth of His Word. The knowledge of the truth. And then the second thing He's done, and I find this profound. Profound. He says, I exhort there first of all supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. I've got to break this down a little bit. This idea of supplication. It literally means to come humbly before God. To come humbly before God. And the word prayer here is relational in terms of worship. Intercession. The first meaning for the word intercession is interview. Interview. And giving of thanks be made for all men. So put all those together. I have to humbly come before God in my intimate worship relationship with the living God and bring people to Him that I have interacted with. It goes back to what I said originally. See, if I don't know anything about you, there's not a lot I can come to God with you about. Does that make sense? If I haven't talked to you and I don't know your struggles, I don't know what's going on in your life, I haven't spent time with you, I haven't tried to disciple you, I haven't preached the truth to you, I haven't done those things to you, I don't know anything about you. How am I going to come? Oh, Lord, do something with somebody. I know my God knows all things. But I have also realized this from Romans. It says that I do not know how to pray as I should. Scripture tells me I don't know how to pray as I should. So what do you think? Is you think it's possible that maybe God has put that name of that person in your mind? That person you've been interacting with? That person you've been talking to? That person you really would hope that they would get saved? That man needs the Lord. How many times have you ever said this one? Boy, that boy needs the Lord. Y'all laughing because you've said it. Well, duh, we all did, right? And somewhere in your life, you know, I'm going to submit to you that somewhere in your life, somebody had your name pop in their head. And they started praying for you. They started in their humbly coming before their God and in their intimate love relationship with the living God brought you up. And they began to talk about you to the Lord. And I'm going to submit that it was God who put your name in their head to be brought up. And in that process, God was gracious. Now, He might have equipped you to preach more truth to them. He might have equipped you to do something else in their lives. But it was God who was working. He has picked a program that includes His truth be made known in the seeking of God to convey that truth. That's what he's talking about here. I desire that it be made for all men, including kings and all in authority, 
And I thought about this one too, and I just got to put this here for some context. Remember now, this book was written in about between 62 and 65 AD. So for a little context, you know what's about to happen in seven to five years, or eight to five years, somewhere in there? Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. The Romans are about to come in and destroy Jerusalem, take out the temple. Epiphany is going to take over, and he's going to offer blood on the altar, a pig's blood on the altar. He's going to desecrate it, abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and the whole thing begins. People are being chased out of town. So what do you think is going on five to eight years before that? I can tell you what's going on. Can you believe what the governor said today? Oh, my gosh. You know how many denarii they sent to the border? Man, that, that lieutenant governor has yet to show up down at the border. I can't believe what's going on. Can you, have you seen the price at the market? I'm having to burn dung's, uh, cow's dung because I can't afford wood to burn. Sound familiar? Maybe that's why he wants us to pray for kings and all who are in authority so that I might lead a quiet and peaceable life. Because trust me, if the government burns down in this country, you and I will not be having a quiet and peaceable life. I need these men and women to live for God. He says, I desire this. I desire this. And he's given us his word, and he's given us a way in which we could see this take place. And all the glory goes to the living God. Every last drop. Because He's the one who has decreed this. And what He's telling us is to teach Jesus and pray for one another. And that's the point of the message. I pray for all of you. I pray for those who, to the best of my understanding, don't confess Christ. I pray for those who are newborn so they might be nourished on the sincere milk of the word where they can grow. I pray for mature Christians to stand up and be mature, take ownership in who they say they are, and live in the way God would have us to live. I rejoice in all of that. But he tells me here that I need to do these things and I need to be doing them because I desire what God desires. That all men be saved. You know, that's what happened in your life. That's what happened in mine. God desired you to be saved. And somebody preached the truth to you. Somebody conveyed the message. A whole bunch of people prayed for you. I've shared with you about my granny's church. First time I showed up there, I, they'd say, Oh, you're Robin Thomas. You're Mrs. Thomas's grandson. We've been praying for you. Then people were busy. Then people were busy. And God was gracious. That's what happened to you, that's what happened to me, and that's what can happen to others. The real question for all of us today is simply this. What do you desire? What do you desire to see happen in other people's lives? I've come to realize this about it, and I'll eventually shut up. We all have loved ones, family, and friends that we would like them to stop doing some things. Right? Am I the only one? I'll hold my hand up. We would like them to stop doing things. On the other hand, we would also then like them to start doing some things, right? 
I submit to you that neither one of those are going to take place until you start seeking the will of God on their behalf, praying that God perhaps would be merciful to them and fill their lives with Himself. Because when He fills a person, it's like the temple was in the days of Solomon. Even the priest have to leave. Because when the glory of God fills a thing, everything else moves. Whatever they're doing that they shouldn't be doing, when God shows up, that'll stop. Whatever they're supposed to be doing, when God shows up, that'll start. So let's start praying and making intercession and giving of thanks that God would be glorified in the lives of every person that's on your heart. And let God be God and men be men. And let's just desire what God desires.